some people um, would argue that um, exercise is medicine. I see it slightly differently, and it's kind of an, an important um, difference is that I see it more that inactivity is like poison. So humans naturally should be moving those whatever equivalent of 20,000 steps a day of inactivity. And it's when we drop below that threshold that we get sick. So that is like high, being highly active is very normal. It's like if you look at what people did and how the human body evolved to move, um, we're good at covering big pieces of ground. So like we're great on foot going far distances. Um, we're also the only animal that can carry. And so what the way that I translate that in the comfort crisis is, um, is through rucking. Like I think rucking is an awesome activity for the average person because you're getting in cardio, but it also has a strength element because you've got weight on your back. You're doing something that the human body is designed for. It also has a much lower injury risk compared to something like say running. And it's just uh, overall, you're doing a lot of good for your body. You're listening to the Born Primitive Podcast. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to the Born Primitive Podcast. We have a rare afternoon recording today. I'm here with my co-host, Tony Strazier. Good afternoon, Tone. Good afternoon, Bear. And we are really excited about today's guest. I, I think this topic today is really uh, going to be thought-provoking, and, and I think there's really going to be some key takeaways, key life takeaways from this episode. Um, but with us today is Michael Easter. Um, he's a journalist, a professor, best-selling author. Um, his books, Maximus Bod, Comfort Crisis, and most recently that just came out is Scarcity Brain. Uh, he spent his career traveling worldwide to research on, and write on what promotes human flourishing. Um, his research has been implemented in all kinds of organizations from sports teams, Fortune 500 companies, elite military units, etc. Uh, been featured on Forbes, ESPN, Men's Health, the list goes on. Uh, so today we want to dive into all of this with Mike um, and obviously get into Scarcity Brain, which is the most recent release. Uh, Mike, uh, welcome to the Born Primitive Podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm psyched to be here. Should be fun. So I guess, Mike, to get it started, um, do you want to you go by Michael or Mike? Does it matter? Uh, I, I'm rather indifferent. Most people call me Michael, but um, I won't mistake it for someone else. So Got it. Check. Yeah, I guess you're the, only, you you're the only Mike in the house right now. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, Michael, just, I guess, kick us off. Tell us about your, your you have a pretty unique background. So, so walk us through that. Uh, yeah, so I, um, I worked in magazines for most of my uh, 20s. So I, um, <clears throat> after college, grad school, I worked at a couple different magazines, and I ended up working at Men's Health Magazine for about seven years. And then after that, I took a job as a professor at uh, UNLV here in Las Vegas, which is where I still live. And the reason I did that is because once you get to a certain level in magazines, you stop writing, you start to be asked to do more of the business end, more of the editing stuff. And while that was fine, what I've always really enjoyed is writing and um, getting out on the ground and reporting. So going places, going to hang out with groups that are totally different than me, find unique subcultures and just kind of embed myself there and then write about what I learned from them. And so at, uh, at UNLV as a professor, you know, some of my job is the teaching, but a lot of it is just continuing to practice journalism and write, uh, being out in the world, practicing. And so that's what I do now. I spend uh, most of my time writing books and working on other projects that involve writing. Awesome. And, and obviously, like the, the main topic I think we'll hone in on is the, the concept of human flourishing. And I know this is something you've spent years 
diving into. And, and I'm fascinated. There's so many topics I want to cover that I don't even know if we'll be able to get into because I, I feel like I'm in a moment right now of reflection of like, okay, how do I optimize my own life and how do I not become victim of some of these, you know, scarcity brain topics that you get into, even like the social media one Tony and I were talking about is a huge one and how it's set up in a way to that scarcity loop. And, you know, so we'll get into all that, but, but mm -hmm. uh, I guess generally just start with the, the concept of human flourishing, what drew you to it and um, how did you get involved? And I guess what were, I guess the main takeaways as you rolled up your sleeves and got into it as you know, the, the things that you started to, to, to discover. Yeah. Well, I kind of fell into the work that I do, which is a lot of thinking and writing about um, physical health, mental health, what makes humans happy, what makes us live longer, um, all these, you know, important questions about what it means to be a human and how to do that better. Um, <clears throat> so I had come up wanting to work for a magazine like maybe Esquire or something, writing these sort of long form magazine pieces where I you know, I might go cover war zone one day. I might, you know, go cover some other subculture another day. But what ended up happening is um, the job at Men's Health. So, you know, when you when a job gets offered to you in the magazine industry, you take it because they're few and far between. And I got thrown into reporting a lot on human health, like physical health, mental health, nutrition, all that sort of stuff. And um, I was uh, always kind of interested in those topics. But once I got into mental health, I realized that I was a lot more interested than I realized. And that there's a lot there to unpack. And ultimately, that it's uh, very important to the average person. Like you can give someone information, whoever they are, that they can immediately use to improve their life. And um, <clears throat> once I started to go down that rabbit hole, I realized, you know, you, you sometimes get constrained by magazine work because there's word counts. There are certain topics that might seem overly complex to a national audience and ultimately magazines are kind of weird. And so books allowed me to really go down the rabbit hole of that. And, you know, to me, a lot of the work I do, it tracks back to evolution and what, um, you know, I ask questions like, why do we do this thing that we do today that hurts us in the first place? Because oftentimes we just want to fix the behavior without often thinking about, well, why the hell would someone do that in the first place? It's like, why do we eat so much? Why are we overweight? It's like, well, because, you know, for all of time, if you had the opportunity to eat food and overeat it, that would have given you a survival advantage because we didn't ever have enough food. But now we have too much food and we still have that ancient wiring. And you can put that across the board from, from exercise to mental health to all these important things that are affecting us today. So that's sort of the larger lens of how I look at things. So my book, The Comfort Crisis, it looks at how the shift from environments that were inherently uncomfortable to those that are more comfortable has affected us. And scarcity brain looks at how this tip into environments where everything we needed to survive were scarce and hard to come by. Once we shifted to today, where pretty much everything we need to survive, there's a ton of it, like food, stuff, information, um, ways to get status, how that oftentimes works against us. So when when you when you started writing the comfort crisis at some point, and I read this in my research, you lived in Alaska or camped in Alaska for a month, correct? Yeah, yeah. So we did this uh, long. Well, it was about. It was a little more than a month. We did this backcountry hunt in Alaska up in the Arctic. So we were maybe a hundred miles into the Arctic Circle. And was that that was that was before writing the book, correct, or was that after? 
Yeah. So what happened with that is um, most times when you have a nonfiction book, you um, you pretty much have the idea and have done all the reporting and then you try and go out and sell it. But with this one, like I couldn't go to Alaska for more than a month without some sort of capital to fall back on, let's say. So I was able to sell the book to a publisher without having done that trip. And then I went and did that and uh, yeah, wrote the book. And so in that book, that time in Alaska, that month is sort of the overarching narrative of the book. And as I'm encountering all these different discomforts in Alaska that humans used to face all the time that can still keep us healthy and happy, I sort of peel out into those topics. So for example, you know, once uh, <laughs> at a certain point, you know, hunting becomes exceedingly boring for 33 days. And that leads into a chapter about what are the upsides of boredom? Why do humans get bored in the first place? How is it changing? And how we how can we leverage it today to live better? So things like that, but all sorts of different forms of discomfort. And are you somebody who naturally had kind of these key takeaways now that you've been able to write about? Um, were you already exposing yourself to those things naturally? Or is it something where like, no, you became fascinated with the topic, you kind of delved into it. And now, after after writing your book, you've been able to implement it. And yeah, I guess the question is, were you already doing these things? Or was it like, no, you became fascinated. And then afterwards, um, I'm sure you had some key takeaways that you were able to integrate into your life. Yeah, I think it was a mix. Um, you know, so I'll give you an, I'll give you a couple examples. So when I wrote the book proposal, um, you know, I knew that I would have a chapter on physical activity because when you're on this expedition in Alaska for 33 days, you're going to be moving way more than you would in normal life. And so I could account for that. And I was already, you know, embedded in sort of the, the fitness world. But there were other things that happened up there that I didn't necessarily expect. So for example, once I got up there, um, you know, you're, you're hundreds of miles away from civilization. And one of the more surprising things is just how freaking quiet it is up there. So you'd be standing on the tundra and, you know, I remember this one time I just hear this. And I'm going like, what the hell is that? Like, what the hell is that? Um, and it was my wristwatch because it's so quiet that the tick sort of gets amplified because there's no other sound around. And so that allowed me, you know, that was surprising, but then that also sort of opened my eyes to think about, oh, wow, like the world is a lot louder than it probably was in the past. And how has that affected us? So it turns out that, you know, the world is about fourfold louder now that humans have sort of taken it over and all the noise we live in, um, has had a lot of effects on our ability to focus on our mental health in a lot of ways. It's even tied to physical health because uh, living in too much noise effectively elevates stress levels. And that is one of the main risk factors in cardiovascular disease, for example. So there's just all these different ways that the world has changed. Some that I think are obvious to the, uh, the average person, but some that are totally unobvious. And so my reasoning for sort of getting out of the office and going into some of these environments that are hard to get to, uh, is so I can really understand the topic better. I don't know if that answers your question, but. Yeah. The, the topic in nature is so interesting. Cause like, that's something like we all, I think we all know that like getting into nature is so good for so many different reasons. And like bring up the example, like one of our, like, uh, 
guys who's involved with Born Primitive Outdoor. His name's Aaron Snyder. He's like a prominent bow hunter. And like anytime I'm around Aaron and talk to the guy, and the, the dude is in the field like 200 days of the year. So that's how I'm getting, you know, it'll, it'll come full circle here. But he's the most chill, relaxed, like seemed balanced guy like I've probably ever met. But he's doing these like three week, four week elk hunts. You know, he's just in British Columbia for I think seven weeks in the mountains with no comms. You know what I mean? All they have is like a beacon to get the plane to come get them. They're 300 miles from any civilization. And it's like you can almost observe the effect that him being in nature has had on just his temperament. Right. And um, so I guess for as far as nature specifically, what do you think like the key takeaways are in, in how do we how do we make that applicable to the everyday person? Because I've thought about this. Like, I want to start getting out west more, and in, in and I'm starting to try to come up with a plan. All right, in a, in a year, where um, you know, a dad, you know, full time single dad running a business, trying to be balanced with fitness and all these things. Like, what what is an attainable goal for someone to get into nature? Um, and what I guess what are the the key benefits that you derive from doing your research? Yeah, I, there's a pretty um, straightforward answer to this. So. I definitely experienced the same thing that you're talking about with um, Aaron after I got back from the Arctic where you just feel like when you're up there, you just feel super chill, super Zen. Um, you're just having, you know, your, your thinking is clear. You're very focused. Um, even the way you think sort of changes after a certain amount of time in nature. And, you know, being a journalist, it's like, I, my job is to figure out, well, why is that? And so I ended up traveling to uh, Boston and meeting with this neuroscientist. And she's uh, researching this theory called the nature pyramid. And you can kind of think of it like the food pyramid, except instead of telling us, you know, eat this many servings of grain and this many of vegetables or whatever, it tells people how much time you should spend in different types of nature. So you can think about this. Um, I call it the 25-3 rule because that seems to resonate with people. It helps them remember the numbers. But it basically goes like this. So 20 minutes a day, uh, 20 minutes, three times a week in the type of nature that you can find in like a city park or a really tree-lined street, that is associated with decreases in stress and increases in productivity. So then the next rung up is the five, and that's five hours a month in the type of nature that, you know, you might have a trail, it's a little more rugged but it might be like a state park where like there's a parking lot and then you hit the trail, right? You're not super far removed. You probably st still get cell service. So five hours a month in that type of nature is associated with increases in happiness and decreases in uh, depression. And that's from a giant study out of Finland. And then at the top is uh, three days and that's three days in the back country. So this is the type of nature where, you know, you probably don't get cell service. You have to hike in. So three days a year in that type of nature, it leads to some really, interesting changes in the brain in that, you know, in everyday life in the built environment, your brain rides what are called uh, beta waves. So these are these sort of frenetic go, go, go waves. They're associated with stress and burnout and all these things. But after three days in the backcountry, people's brains start to ride what are called alpha waves. And these are the same waves that are found in experienced meditators. And they're associated with calm, with creativity, with just feelings of connectedness, like all these things that we want humans to have, right? Um, so that provides sort of this week to month to year long framework for the average person to think, how can I get the most mental health benefits from nature? It's 20 minutes, three times a week in nearby nature. It's five hours total a month in something like a state park. And it's spending at least three days sort of off the grid every year in the backcountry. 
that, that's awesome here because that that's so attainable. You know what I mean? If you were like, ah, oh, you got to spend 30 days off the grid in a, in a camper and, you know, it's out yeah. west like that. But um, that's super attainable. And um, I totally think we should all strive to do that because, you know, just to get that balance back. And uh, my next question, I want to talk about fitness because it, it sounds like you're saying that at the biological level, going back to how we've evolved, you know, that, that at one point you had to have a lot of physical exertion to survive. You were hunting your food and doing all these things. And now it's like we don't eat, you, know, you could be completely um, inactive and, and you still would be able to go to the grocery store and get food and all these things. Um, but most of us that are um, really into fitness and our lives kind of revolve around that as one of the pillars of our, of our own wellness. It's like you, you, anytime you leave the gym, you feel incredible and you're more productive that day. And it's just, there's so many benefits that come from it. And it, and it seems like based on what you're saying, that's, that's probably an evolutionary trait that while we don't have to do that anymore, it's still triggering kind of what we were hardwired to do. And I would imagine the contrary to the people that Nick haven't worked out in 10 years, they have to be limiting their own happiness because they're not tapping into a, a biological instinct that, you know, has been hardwired over, you know, thousands and thousands of years. Is that an accurate assessment? And, and could you elaborate on that more? Yeah. I mean, so among animals, humans are, are very active. We evolved to cover uh, large ranges of land. I mean, the, the reason, for example, the reason that we can walk on two feet is because this is, you know, about six and a half million years ago, um, there becomes this cooling period in the jungle and you start to get not as much fruit. And so the, our ancestors that could cover more ground on foot, they had a survival advantage. So this is what eventually led us to walk upright because we're just, we're amazing at covering ground basically. So we're highly active. And when you look at say hunter gatherer tribes, which are a good model to try and gauge, okay, like how much did humans move in the past, right? Um, they're taking at least 20,000 steps a day, every single day when I mean, they're walking miles and miles, but also you have to realize that this is throughout the day, right? And as they're walking, they're also carrying stuff. They're doing things like digging, but like their, their lives are just active all the time. And now we very much have sort of segmented off. Like you have, <laughs> you have life and then you have your 30 minutes at the gym, right? And yeah. I think this is very different than how we evolved to exercise. So a lot of what I think about exercises, you know, you'll, some people um, would argue that um, exercise is medicine. I see it slightly differently. And it's kind of an, an important um, difference is that I see it more that inactivity is like poison. So humans naturally should be moving those whatever equivalent of 20,000 steps a day of inactivity. And it's when we drop below that threshold that we get sick. So that is like high, being highly active is very normal. Um, so how I, I guess, apply that to someone listening and it's like, okay, how the hell do you use that in your own life? It's like, if you look at what people did and how the human body evolved to move, um, we're good at covering big pieces of ground. So like we're great on foot going far distances. Um, we're also the only animal that can carry. So humans, yeah, we, we, we're the only ones that can carry basically, right? Other animals, if you want them to carry something, you got to strap the load to them. But because we evolved to walk on two feet and have these like hands and opposable thumbs and strong fingers, um, we can carry tools into the unknown. We can carry meat back to camp. We can do all this different um, forms of carrying. And I think that that's still really important for humans. 
And so what the way that I translate that in the comfort crisis is, um, is through rucking. Like I think rucking is an awesome activity for the average person because you're getting in cardio, but it also has a strength element because you've got weight on your back. You're doing something that the human body is designed for. It also has a much lower injury risk compared to something like say running. And it's just, uh, overall you're doing a lot of good for your body. And then I think also we should be, you know, doing some lifting. I think sometimes, um, people today, especially in like kind of gym culture, maybe lifting gets over-prioritized compared to cardio. Um, but that's okay. I mean, we're picking straws at this point. The real battle is like most Americans aren't active at all. So like how the hell do you get them to do something? Um, and I do think for those populations, rucking is probably good because it's, you know, it's, it's hard to tell someone who's become very heavy, like go out for a run. That's not gonna be good for them. Um, gyms can be intimidating. So with rucking, they're getting a strength effect and a cardio effect and the injury risk is pretty low. Yeah, it's fat. It's almost become cliche at this point, but you hear, I know I, a PT told this to me like eight years ago. He's like, sitting will be the new cigarettes in 10 years. Meaning that like in 10 years, we're going to realize like, what the hell were we doing the same way with now? It's like, it's not like the fifties anymore. If you're smoking cigarettes, you know what you're doing to your body. It's like <laughs> yeah. now we just sit, we don't even talk about it. But in, he, he said like, Hey, in 10 years, like, and this isn't, I don't think it was his own thought, but we're going to look back and be like, what the hell were we doing sitting for 10, 15 hours a day without any, any level of activity? Yeah. And even natural, I would imagine natural sunlight has to come in there too, right? Like we're, we hit the gym for an hour, but then you're in like these off these, we have these fluorescent lights in the office all day. Um, there has to be a component of that. That's not natural. And like, we talked about this, even if you leave the office and you walk around the block, like for what, 15 minutes and you Twice come back day, and you're yeah. kind of reset. Yeah. Um, that has to go back to something, you know, in, in our evolutionary history, I would imagine for the, for the same reasons we were already talking about. Yeah, Michael, yeah cool. I mean, if I was, let me just quickly add, like, if you think yeah, about how people were physically active in the past, there was also a, there's also a component where you had to think while you're doing it. So think about like tracking an animal, not only are you being really physically active, but that's like, pretty hard cognitively, you're like having to read patterns, you're having to remember where the hell you are, you're having to like figure out all these things as you're moving. And then the context of a gym setting like you can just shut your brain off and go on the treadmill and, you know, have friends or real housewives of LA beamed into your brain as you sort of zone <laughs> out. And, uh, there's some researchers at, uh, university of Southern California who I've talked to, who think that finding ways to make exercise uh, mentally challenging is also going to be important for longevity. And a very simple way to do that is just to do it outside. Like think of the complexity of something like trail running versus running on a treadmill, right? It's like, you have to pace yourself. You're gonna have ups and, ups and downs. You're gonna have to watch where your feet placement is. You're gonna have to think better about how is the temperature affecting my body temperature and how I'm able to run. Like there's all these other factors you have to uh, account for. So to sort of bring it back to your point about indoor exercise, probably not being as great as outdoor exercise. And do you, Michael, with, with such a uh, an array of kind of projects you've worked on and books you've written, are you optimistic? Both I, I, it can be in both the one we just talked about, the the physical fitness, and then also the technology. Do you remain optimistic that there will be a bit of a maybe a correction or a rebound, and we will, as a society, start to value these things more and more? And I, let's speak specifically to technology first. Like, do you see? with what has exploded over the last, let's call it 10 years with social media and all the different technological advances, do you remain optimistic that, that as a culture, we'll kind of take a hard look, maybe take a step back and say, 
okay, there is an undeniable value to, to technology, to these different things we're implementing, but there are negative effects that also need to be discussed in for us to be aware of as a culture. Do you see that happening? Or do you see like the, the, the genies out of the bottle We're we're running so hard in that direction that like, I don't know if you want to, I think Rogan actually said like a, a just a pure integration is going to happen with us in technology. And maybe it's not one or the other, but where do you kind of land on, on that spectrum? Yeah. So as part of this new book, Scarcity Brain, I, uh, I live in Vegas and I, I wanted to know like, why the hell they get, why the hell do people get so obsessed with slot machines? <laughs> because they're everywhere in town and people play them around the clock and I'm a journalist. So it's like, okay, this doesn't make any damn sense. Like you're just, everyone knows the house wins. Right. <laughs> so long story short is that, um, through a, a strange web of, you know, talk to this person who told me about this person who told me, talk to this person who told me, talk to that person. Um, <clears throat> I end up at this uh, casino on the edge of town in Las Vegas and it's brand new. It's cutting edge but it's not open to the public because it's a casino laboratory. So this is basically a place where the gambling industry and big tech have built a real working casino, but are using it entirely for human behavior research. And they're basically figuring out how to alter people's behaviors more or less. And in the book, I talk about this, uh, to bring it back to slot machines, I talk about this three-part behavior loop that I call the scarcity loop. And it's why slot machines work. So it's got uh, opportunity first, unpredictable reward second, and then three quick repeatability. So you have an opportunity to get something of value in the case of slot machines it's money, right? You have unpredictable rewards. So, you know, you'll get the thing of value, but you don't know when you don't know how uh, valuable it's going to be. So with the slot machine game, it's like, you could lose, win a few bucks, win a few million bucks, right? It's this crazy range of outcomes. And then uh, three, you have quick repeatability, which is that you can just repeat the behavior immediately, 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 immediately. So the reason that this is important to understand and why it is important for people who aren't compulsive gamblers in Las Vegas, but rather everyone, is that uh, you can put this system in a lot of other things to make people repeat behaviors as well. So it's now in social media, it's in dating apps. It's being embedded in like gig economy apps. It's, uh, it explains the rise of sports gambling. It's been, I mean, it's everywhere now. And there's really nothing better at grabbing human attention and compelling us to repeat behaviors that can be fun in the short term, but ultimately detrimental in the long run. Just like gambling, right? Gambling's fun while you're doing it until you've done it so much and the house has drained you and you're like, where the hell did my money go? <laughs> right? But in the case of social media, it's, where the hell did all my time go? Where the hell did all my attention go? With something like a finance app, it might be, yeah, where the hell did all my money go? Because I'm doing all these crazy trades all day. Um, so that's a long way to sort of bring it back to your question. I do think that the odds are stacked against us because you literally have people who have spent their lives thinking about these questions and they're all working together in labs and they have so much data about what works. Right. Like, I mean, you ever wonder why when you go on Instagram, like the ads seem to be perfectly tailor made to you. It's like, it just looks at like everyone you follow and everything you liked. And, you know, in my case, it's like, Hey dude, how about this Grateful Dead t-shirt? And I'm like, Oh my God, that's the dopest Grateful Dead t-shirt I've ever seen in my life. I'm buying that shit right now. But you put that at scale behind every behavior. And it's like the system 
the system effectively can train us to do what it wants. I mean, I don't really see much difference between say me telling my dog to sit and giving him a treat than I do Instagram putting up a notification on an app and me opening the app. It's just, it's, you're being trained with a reward, right? right? So, you know, I think it's going to be as technology advances, I think it's going to be even harder for us to get out of some of these things. At the same time, I'm hopeful that people can get out of these things. You just have to become aware of what's happening. You have to realize it's not going to be easy and you have to make um, conscious choices to decide to live better. And a lot of times, you know, it might take, it might take where you get to the point where you're like, good God, what, what the hell has happened to me? And then you're able to sort of break out of the system. Yeah. I think that's what you just closed with is such an important thing. Cause I know personally it's, I grew up on a 200 acre farm in the middle of nowhere. So telling people, even, even a book or you being on podcast as with anything in life, you can tell people over and over, Hey, these things are having effects on you. Like there are benefits to maybe detaching a little and getting out in nature. But until you have the lived experience of seeing the, the difference between those two, it's like any information it's in one ear and out the other. But when you have the lived experience of, and Bear and I were kind of talking about this before we came on, when I go back to my farm or you go out on a seven day hunt or you spend a full day even at the beach without any cell phone, when you feel the difference in the way you described it earlier, the, the, the way you think, the way even your body feels, the way you move, that then you will go back to those shitty patterns, but in the back of your head, you're gonna have that little story or that little voice saying like, hey, don't you remember how you felt when you're out in the wilderness for seven days, when you're on the beach for one day? And then, so you go do that again. And in and, and myself, I think over time, you start to realize like, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep swinging back and forth between feeling like, like a, a rat on a wheel, feeling neurotic, feeling this heightened sense of just like, go, go, go. And then also these other things of value when I'm in nature, it's like, where can I find the balance in that? And I think as, as individuals and then as a society, the more we live those two very like different things, my, my hope, and maybe this is delusionally optimistic, is that we do start to, to maybe shift even just slightly towards realizing, hey, set down the phone, like get outside more, set boundaries for yourself. It doesn't mean we get rid of technology, but it's like, can we, can we form boundaries so that we're not living in a neurotic state, which has ramifications that in the short term are hard to see, but when you zoom out, you start to see as a culture, whether that's sickness or different mental illnesses. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's like, if, if you decide that you want to spend 15 hours a day on TikTok, I, that's fine with me, but I just want you to be able to decide that and not just fall into it and be like, how the hell did I spend 15 hours on TikTok? So really my point is more, we need the tools to be able to make the conscious choice rather than just sort of having the system train us to do this thing. And then we look back and go, where the hell is my time going? You know? Yeah. And that casino lab is such a fascinating, that was chapter one, right? Slot machines yeah, in the yeah, casino yeah. lab. Yeah. It, it was fascinating. So for those that are listening, like definitely get the book. It goes into way more detail and, and we're wave topping it, but like it, it, it almost kind of goes all back to the slot machine analogy and, and, and it transcends so many different things. And it is honestly a little alarming because I, I, from what I recall in chapter one, you talk about the other companies that have invested in this lab and they aren't just casinos. I mean, I would imagine like the metas, you know, Facebook and Instagram and all those companies like that are saying, oh, we'd love to be a part of this to get the key takeaways. And it's like we were talking about Instagram. It's like it's almost in a way like a slot machine. You got the the stories up top that, you know, then, then the scrolling going down and um, you're getting notifications and someone sent you a message and someone liked this and someone commented and it's, it's almost creating the same three tenets that you just discussed. And like you said, before you know it, it's been 40 minutes and you're like, what the hell 
that I just waste 40 minutes on. And hopefully people will become so more self-aware of the opportunity cost of doing that versus what they could be doing with that 40 minutes. Um, so I think that's the first step, but I, I, I don't know if I've used like the boiling frog analogy before, but like, I'm, I don't think I've done it on the podcast, but I would imagine like, you know, th there's the analogy of the frog that if you throw a frog in a boiling pot of water, it realizes the water's boiling and it jumps right out. But if you put a frog in a pot of, you know, room temperature water, you turn on the burner and little by little starts to boil, it won't even realize it and it'll boil alive. I feel like maybe as a society, we've experienced that, you know, if someone you to take someone from the seventies and drop them into 2023, they'd probably be like, F that I'm out of here. Right. But it's just little by little, these small changes have been happening and we don't even realize it's, it's happening. And, and before you know it, people are glued to their phone. Um, you're constantly able to be reached by people at every hour of the day. And you know, you're much better because you shut your phone off at what, seven o'clock you go on airplane yeah, mode. Yeah. So you're way better. I mean, you're doing things to mitigate kind of what society has created, but we were joking before this, like back in the day, it was just landlines. If you're watching a football game, you're not going to call your buddy and be like, Hey, did you see that pick six? That was cool. Wasn't it? Okay. See you later. You know what I mean? Instead, you know, now you can text your buddies and be like, Hey, do you guys see that? And then you're on a thread with, and before you know it, you know what I mean? Your phone's blowing up and you, you have not unplugged at all. And so it's just, it's crazy what we've um, kind of evolved into, but I think it's cool that somebody like you is taking initiative so we all become at least aware of what the hell is going on so we can at least mitigate it if, if in it, but I think it takes discipline. Um, because you know, you can go out and say, Hey, I'm going to work out. I'm going to do hard things. I'm going to unplug. I'm going to go into nature, but it's like, well, Netflix and a glass of wine and scrolling Instagram <laughs> sounds pretty good too. And most people, unfortunately, I think fall into that. And I, I think that kind of gets, you know, you're wearing a hat that says 2%. I think that kind of gets into that, right? Is that most people, unfortunately, well, all of us, I think are wired to take the easy path. You know, we, we choose to seek pleasure and avoid pain. That's a human instinct. Um, so by the, the comforts that society has created, we're almost being guided down that path of, of seeking comfort and avoiding pain when, when in, in some cases we should be doing the opposite. And I know one of the tenets you talked about in the other book was, was just basically doing hard shit. Um, is that, is that accurate? And I, can you get into that a little bit more on what that does for us? And again, it's, it's tough now because you could go through your life and not really do a ton of really hard things. It, it has to be almost a conscious decision that I'm going to, Hey, I'm going to go kick myself in the balls for a couple hours and really feel it. Um, and then there'll be a kind of a, a mental reward on the back end because of what you experienced. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the 2%, um, comes from this stat that found that 2% of people will take the stairs when there's also an escalator available. And so that to me is really one of those stats that shows just how wired to do the next most easy, most comfortable thing we are. But when you think about it, 100% of those people knew that taking the stairs would give them a long-term benefit, right? It would improve their health somehow with packing and exercise, whatever, but 98% of people chose to do the easy thing. And so I think that, um, you know, that framework made sense for a lot of time. Like when the world was uncomfortable and it was really hard, never made sense to do the hard thing because the world was hard. And so if you were the person who did uh, the comfortable thing, the easy thing, um, whether it was avoiding activity, whether it was, uh, you know, eating as much food as you could when you had the opportunity, whatever it might be, that gave you a survival advantage. But it doesn't anymore because our environments have changed to be comfortable and easy. And now it leads us to take the escalator, even when we know taking the stairs would give us a long-term benefit. So to me today, the story of improvement is really being willing to sort of embrace short-term discomfort in order to get a long-term benefit. 
And that involves doing things that are challenging, like taking the stairs is harder than the escalator. Um, spending time in nature is often less stimulating in the short term than, you know, watching 20 TikTok videos in a row, whatever it might be. But the upside is that they improve you with, that improves you in the long haul, right? Like the, the things that most improve humans are never going to be easy. It's always going to be a challenge, but by going through that, you learn something about yourself. You change in a way that puts you on a path that I think ultimately you want to be on, but it is a, it is a conscious decision. And the, the 2% thing is I have a sub stack that's called 2% after that study. And I just, I write about this topic in all sorts of ways. Um, so it's at TWOPCT.com. But yeah, I mean, uh, that's really it. And I think we often overcomplicate it, but it is finding like, how can I do the slightly challenging thing that I know will give me this long-term benefit? And there's where patience is so important because that if, if you're going to embody delayed gratification, as you just mentioned, it's going to take time to show up. But in my experience, and I know individuals around me, it does show up eventually. And it becomes, it, it almost is like anything as you build momentum and you see the value in it it gets easier and easier to do, but it does take a period where a lot of your decisions, you're not getting that instant gratification for. So you have to kind of expand the period in which you're waiting to see results. But then if you, I, I think if you do it the right way and not to say that there's one right way, but you'll look back on say a two year period or a three year period and you'll have that hell yeah moment of like, damn, that was hard as hell while I was in it. But reflecting on it now, like look where that put me. And that's, the, the, the more individuals are able to do that, I think it does. It, it allows you to kind of step out of that neurotic everyday decision-making and kind of zoom out and be willing to kind of sit in the trenches for a while on things because you built that muscle of seeing the value in that over the long term. Yeah, I mean, that like every good story is, you know, there's a guy named Joseph Campbell who studied <laughs> uh, mythology and he studied thousands and thousands of myths from around the world. These are places, people who never talked to each other would have never communicated. And all these stories basically have the exact same architecture. It's that, you know, there's this person who is in sort of normal life and things are fine. And then something pops up where there's a problem and you get thrust into this world where you got to solve the problem. You got to do something hard. But through that um, process, you learn a lot about yourself. You improve as a human. And then they come out on the other side and they've achieved some larger piece of wisdom that they're able to bring back into their everyday life. And that, that really is it. I mean, people don't grow when times are easy, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I mean, the, the hero's journey, which is, is something I'm extremely fascinated by. It's, it's, it's interesting that as a culture and you, and you said it earlier with like uncontacted tribes and stuff, or even if you don't have to go that far, like that, that was a very, that's a very normal part of, of a lot of cultures if you look back on history and it's something i think we've completely lost now you you're part you were part of a part of a culture that i think still kind of embodies that which is the military but yeah there were all kind of different historical whether it was a hunt or even a psychedelic uh, uh ceremony where when you were becoming a man you were put through that experience and that was your rite of passage to like kind of kick off as you said your your then hero's journey where, where you were thrust into your story and and figuring out what that wisdom in it, wisdom is and then being able to extract it out. Yeah, the, the military is a great example. I mean, it's totally the hero's journey where it's like we pull you out of your normal life, we thrust you into something really challenging, you know, like a selection camp. And then if you make it out the other side, you're a new person. And by the way, we're going to prove to everyone else that you're a new person because we're going to give you whatever, the, you know, the, the seal trident or the ranger tab or whatever to signify that you have changed from that hardship. Yeah, and I can say, you know, from firsthand experience from 
going through one of those processes that once that's done and you know the rite of passage that i was able to do was one of the more intense ones um you see the world through a different lens from that day forward i mean there's there's no going back and it's a very good thing because now you know you kind of got to the edge of what what your limit was and you got to live there for a little while um and that's a place that very few people actually go um but but it is fascinating having done it that like you know i now see everything i see challenges through a different lens i, I see hardship through a different lens because I, I have something to compare it to that was probably a lot worse you know what i mean so sure. it's um you know i think it's just back to the example of like when you do hard shit, it's more fulfilling in the end. The harder it is, the more fulfilling it is. And the easier it is, you know, if you just want to take drugs or do something like that's a it's an instant gratification. Like it's you're gonna get a quick hit, but then it's it's not gonna be sustained and it's never gonna be to the level of of a grand achievement of something that you put years of your life into and you finally accomplish that. Um, and there's n there's no way we can ever go around that. The hard way is always gonna produce um, I think the most a fulfilling result at the end um but but most people a lot of people aren't willing to kind of go through that journey and they want the the, the instant gratification well I, michael i actually appreciated something you said on rogan relating to what he just mentioned is that i guess the drug example is an easy one is that like people though aren't people are making decisions for a valid reason usually and that like it's it's easy to jump the conclusions of like what the the one bear just used of like yeah that you look at somebody addicted to drugs, you're like, just pull up, like get, get your shit together, like figure it out. Whereas you kind of described on there, it's like, we have, there, there's something in there that, that is, is forcing, not forcing us, but causing us to make that decision. And it usually is a story that actually is for something, whether it's biological, which I'm sure you could, you could probably expand on more. There is a valid reason in which we're making those decisions. Although on the surface, it looks kind of like a black and white thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I am of the opinion that I don't think people make, like people make decisions for good reasons, although they might seem illogical from the outside, it's for a good reason. And I think drug addiction is a is a great example of that. Um, you know, people will look at a drug addict and be like, why the hell did you, that doesn't make any damn sense. Kind of like me with the slot machine players. But it's like, if you are addicted to drugs, doing your drug of choice, it solves your problems in the short term. It is giving you a short term benefit. Where we start to run into trouble is when people start to select a short-term benefit at the expense of long-term growth, right? So, so drugs become a problem when um, this short-term escape, which provides a short-term benefit, starts to cause long-term problems. And you can apply that same story, whether it's drugs, whether it's overeating, whether it's inactivity. It's like sitting on the couch is always going to be easier than going for a five-mile run. Like that's just the truth, right? But by, by sitting on the couch for, for long periods of time, now you're going to start to rack up benefits. And so it, it takes a real relearning of um, how the value system is. And it also takes being willing to go through that sort of short-term short discomfort and realize that you're going to get a, a bigger benefit on the other side of that. And so for me, like in the, in terms of someone who, you know, has a problem with whether it's drugs or overeating or gambling or whatever it is through my reporting, I've become a lot more empathetic of that. You know, I'm a person who's been sober for nine years. And I can tell you that when I was drinking, like that would solve my problems in the short term, every freaking time, every time. But the problem is, is that <laughs> On the other side of that, after, you know, once you sober up, you're like, oh God, I've just created more problems for myself. My life has fallen apart. But then if I take another drink, oh, the problems go away. So you can see how that cycle starts to cause problems in the long term. And so really what I had to do is be like, okay, 
this is not going to be easy to get sober. It's going to be absolute hell in the short term. But on the other side of that, my life improved across the board. And it took having to having a, a really shitty life for a little while because I couldn't immediately solve my problems. But over time, they self-corrected and I ended up with a much better life. And yeah, well, you know, knock on wood, not dead yet. So. And, and is that, do you think things have to get to an extreme in order to, to finally make the decisions to change? Because something I was talking with, another thing we were talking about before we went live is that one of the three traits, and, and I wish I could cite the source, but I was listening to a podcast and there were three traits that they, they identified most common of high, uh, hyper successful and high performing individuals. And one of those traits was impulse control. So the question for me to you would be is, does it have to be do you have to hit a rock bottom? Do you think in order to like wake up to like, to have better impulse control and make those subtle changes that over time are beneficial to you? Or from your from your background and your research? Are there little things like say an individual right now identifies like, yeah, I'm not off the rails, but my impulse control is just subpar. What are some things right away some tools that you've kind of come by that you think could help an individual whether they are off the rails or just kind of in that in between uh, to help maybe build build that impulse control to to be something where they are more comfortable with delayed gratification. Yeah, well, I will say that um, everyone's bottom is different. And I think that when you look at a lot of the research the government has done on drug addiction and, and things like that, they have maybe over indexed for extreme cases. And when you just look at big massive surveys of people who have stopped um, doing drugs or doing some other bad behavior, the reasons people quit are all over the board. I mean, it could be like, it could be as simple as I missed my kid's soccer game because I was hung over and I don't want to live like that. Like that's not, you know, that's not some crazy, I was living on the streets, blah, 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 crack up, but it was enough for that person. So I do think that, um, you know, it, that is still a bottom for that person, but I don't think it's rock bottom how we would typically think about it, which is a way to say like, you know, you can, you can change for reasons that aren't super extreme in the grand scheme of time and space. I think really for the person trying to make a change, I think starting with why you do the behavior in the first place is a really important question to ask. So, you know, a lot of times when we feel like we're stuck in a rut or we've got some bad behavior, we naturally go, okay, what new thing can I add to try and fix this? You know, I'm doing this problem. Maybe I just need to like add another step to my morning routine. Maybe I need to like blah, 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 right? But we haven't solved whatever the underlying issue is. So I think you need to really peel back the layers and try and figure out why do I do this thing in the first place? What happens right before I do this behavior or I get this urge to do this behavior? And it could be something like, you know, let's say you, um, you, junk, you eat too much junk food. You might find that like, oh, it seems like I eat junk food when I have an interaction with my boss. This person stresses me the hell out. Or it might be, you know, when I find myself in this environment, I do this. When I find myself around this, this person, I tend to do this. So if, then you can unpack, okay, well, why is that? And then you start to sort of unpeel those layers. You can get to the reason why you're taking the short-term gain because it is the behavior is providing you relief in the short term but then the question is okay well how can i find a better way of relief so for example if it's i get a shitty email from my boss he's he's shitty generally and so this leads me to stress eat or you know go out drinking that night whatever it might be you could go okay is there a more reasonable way that i could relieve the stress from that and it could be like i'm going to take a walk 
I'm going to, I'm going to do X, Y, Z, something that's just a better replacement, I think. Yeah. That, that separation is, is so important. And like you said, it can be as simple as a walk and, and it's meditation is one people talk about all the time or just breath work in general. It's like when you, when you're able to develop a habit with those, there is a separation that happens where you can almost start to laugh at your thoughts, like the neurotic thoughts that, as you just said, can lead to these things that you know you don't want to be doing, but you find yourself doing anyway. When you're able to kind of create some separation between yourself and that action, you, you really are. You can, you can kind of zoom out um, uh, of, of your daily habits and, and take a hard look at, at the why behind them. And, and yeah, that, that can lead to a lot of little decisions throughout your day that, that don't make sense. And when you can create that separation, start to make a little more sense. It's almost like so many of the answers when you actually just make it objective and remove the emotion are so obvious. You know what I mean? Like for me, a lot of it is like my, the nighttime routine, right? Like after I put my daughter down and it's like eight, eight o'clock, it's like I, I have two decisions. Like I can pour a glass of wine or a glass and a half of wine and like watch mindless TV. You know what I mean? Or I can go do cold tub, hot tub, hydrate with electrolytes read a paperback book and be in bed by 9.45. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or the original version, maybe I go to bed at 11 and I scroll Instagram for 30 minutes while I'm laying in bed and it's like, then you sleep like crap because you just looked at a screen and you drank wine, which doesn't help sleep. And then you're dragging ass the next day, so it transcends into the next day. Or you're getting up at 5 a.m. ready to rock, refreshed, full eight, feeling accomplished. You know what I mean? And you now you have momentum. You've got small victories. And it's like when you when you actually just look at the pros and cons, it's like such an obvious, okay, you're gonna you should do choice A. But in the moment, if you're not self-aware, you know, a lot of people will gravitate to option B. So like the fact just talking about it raises <laughs> self-awareness yeah. and just knowing what the uh, the long-term benefits are versus the short-term reward. So hopefully, if anything, the people that are listening maybe are, are, are pondering some of their own habits of like, oh, shit, why do I do that? It doesn't produce anything worthwhile in my life. You know what I mean? And I think we're common offenders of all of the same things, you know, the Netflixes and the Instagrams and things like that. There's a reason those are all successful because, you know, it's like the episode. It ends and then it it gives you, what, four seconds to exit out and then the next episode hits and you're like, well, shit, it's 1030, but I guess we'll do one more. You know what I mean? Well, and there, uh, I think there should be some grace and humility there yeah. because we're weird as humans. And yeah. as Michael's a, uh, an expert on, it's like there are reasons for that behavior. They may not be that obvious in the immediate, but like there are reasons for that. And it's like we, we all have that weird itch and you're all going to fall into that. So, yeah, it's you can definitely I mean, you find yourself beating yourself up at times, but it it it's common amongst all of us, I feel like. Yeah, no, and I think it's like you don't have to live this crazy Spartan life all the time. You know, I think there's a time to give yourself some grace, like the weekends. If it's like, all right, we're going to eat like shit. Let's get some meat lovers pizza and some wings <laughs> and we're going to drink some beer and watch some football. Like I'm all about that. You know yeah. what I mean? Because it's if it, but, if, you know, it's like, all right. But then tomorrow we're back on the path and we're going to go hit a hard workout and get back on it. But uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's I, uh, I, yeah. I agree with that 100 percent. It's like and I think it's also kind of finding you know, walk, when you decide that you're going to quote unquote, go off the rails, make the decision to go off the rails, right? It shouldn't be like an impulse to be like, oh yeah, it's like, you should be like, okay, it's Sunday. I'm making the conscious choice that I'm just going to watch this game. I'm going to have this food and it's going to be awesome. And I'm going to enjoy it. Cause a lot of times people will kind of like half ass it. They're like, oh, well, I don't feel, you know, it's Sunday. I shouldn't watch the whole game. So I'm going to write some emails as I watch the game. And I'm going to get like the thin crust, no cheese pizza. And it's just like, you just kind of done a shitty job at going off the rails. It's <laughs> like, if you're going to go off the rails, go off the rails and then get back on the right rails. Like this middle ground, I think can sometimes just lead to frustration. And, you know, you're, you're trying to, you're trying to take the joy out of living sometimes. So it really is like, 
we live in an amazing time to be alive. It's absolutely amazing to be alive right now. Like let's enjoy it too, but also realize that if you enjoy it too often, too much, that's going to cause problems too. Yeah. That's a great example. I, I definitely have done the, the half ass <laughs> off the rails approach. Oh yeah. I don't oh, think yeah. I've ever ordered a thin crust pizza, <laughs> but other than, <laughs> um, Michael, one of the things we've talked about, or at least alluded to in previous podcasts, we had episode two, we talked about, um, kind of fall, chasing success and false summits and how, you know, you're always striving for the next kind of ridge line, and you, you feel like it's going to unlock this new level of happiness and you kind of get there and it's anticlimactic. And then you're like immediately onto the next thing and you don't even actually enjoy the achievement. Um, and, and I guess like, cause you, it, it kind of ties into the, so the, so the t- subtitle of your book, uh, fix your craving mindset and rewire your habits to thrive with enough. And I, I, while they're not totally related, I think there's some overlap here. It's like, how do we live our life in a way where we become content in, 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 in the moment and not always striving for this illusion that we're chasing that we're never actually going to find. Um, and, and, you know, we, in that episode, we talked about, you know, being seven years old and finally realizing that the thing you're chasing was never there. Um, and you know, that happiness in the moment should have been something you were consciously trying to experience. Um, so I guess elaborate on that subtitle and you know if, if it's related to what i just said great but but i'm, I'm fascinated with this topic and, and what what can people do to be more conscious in the moment um and not always be striving for more and i know that it, it biologically and with evolution it gets back to the scarcity brain right where you know we live in a society that has all kinds of surplus yet we still think you got to accumulate 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 and it's we don't need to anymore so so how do we rewire the brain to not think like that and actually be happy in the moment and not always thinking oh you know it's the next thing and then I'll be happy and then when I get that nicer car then I'm happy and then it never happens yeah i, I mean i definitely do think that uh trying to find happiness in the next purchase the next meal the next promotion the next number in your bank account is a dead end. I mean, it, it, it really just doesn't work. Obviously you need some amount of um, possessions, income, whatever it is, like a bare minimum, but I think it's I think it's lower than we actually think than you need to be happy. So as part of the book, I spent a week with these Benedictine monks in New Mexico. And these dudes live a hard lifestyle. Like you can't talk most of the time. They're mostly silent. They get up at 3 a.m. every morning to go pray in the chapel and they go pray seven times a day. Uh, they do four hour, at least four hours of hard labor every single day. Like they're working in fields, they're farming, they're doing all this different stuff. Um, they're, you know, they don't, they're as part of their faith, they don't really overeat or anything like that. Like it's a pretty austere and tough lifestyle, but when researchers do, um, studies on their happiness level, they tend to outscore the average person for happiness. So they, they, they hit pretty high in happiness ratings and, I think part of it, I think most of it actually goes back to the fact that they've found some sort of higher purpose. Like everything they do is for something greater than themselves. So for them, all of their toiling and praying and everything they do is is for God, right? But I don't think, and I'm not saying that the average for the average person that has to be God, but I am saying that the happiest people tend to subvert their own you know, worldly quote unquote desires like salaries and cars and uh, Instagram followers and whatever it might be to sort of doing the next right thing for something that they know is going to help sort of the universe and other people as a whole. So I really do think it comes down to focusing your efforts in a way that 
you know is ultimately going to be good and that is ultimately going to help others and lead to the lifestyle that you want to have and it's consistently practicing that so the the monks have basically set up a sort of living laboratory where they can do that for us it's obviously a little bit harder because we do have access to amazon prime and we can go on instagram and look at that follower count and we can check our bank account all the time but i think that ultimately you really have to practice um doing things that help others and just doing the next right thing because i think when you focus on that you look back and you realize like hey i'm happy even though you didn't you weren't necessarily setting out to choose happiness in the first place yeah spot on just finding purpose and it being more than just about yourself and it, this was a, a i think it, there's obviously something at the psychological level to, to the point you just made and i got to experience this when i was going through you know the selection in the military and other guys had given advice, so I try to emulate it. But the idea was when you're going through the really bad stuff, if you shifted your attention in the moment from your own suffering to like trying to take care of your guys, you immediately forgot about the cold and the pain and all that stuff. Um, and it, it was almost like this mind hack that like you could unlock and, and, um, and it a hundred percent worked. Um, and it was totally effective in the moment. And, and obviously at, on a macro level, if you could do that with your life, um, you know, that, that, that seems to be maybe a, a way to get around all of these distractions that are right in front of our face that, you know, the instant gratification and, and just find purpose and making it about other people. And then in a way that is still self-serving because it will make you happy by doing those things. So it still comes back to making you happy, but you're doing it through a, a different, uh, different lens. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I mean, it, it, we're humans are great too. And that we move the goalpost, right? You probably would have. If it were a hundred years ago, you would have been the happiest person if you had a, a Ford Model T and uh, you know you were working out in the fields for only eight hours instead of 12. Today, we would be like, wow, that person lives a real shit life, right? <laughs> so I think that realizing that over time, the world keeps getting better, but we're still gonna keep kind of searching for the next thing, whatever it is, the next thing at the moment. And that is ultimately um, just kind of a consequence of the time that we're born into and how our brain works and realizing that it's sort of um, some of the higher things are what tend to ultimately make us most happy. Michael, did you go all in during that week? Were you, did you like get rid of your phone and everything when you were at the monastery? <laughs> yeah, well, it worked out in my favor because uh, there was no cell reception except for like one little patch of ground in the parking lot. <laughs> So I would go text my wife, like, you know, still alive. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I did the whole thing that the first morning, it was pretty funny though, because uh, I got in kind of late and I slept through the first thing in the chapel at like 3 a.m. I was just like, oh God, they already think I'm lazy. <laughs> what's uh, the, what's the penalty with the monks? If you missed the first prayer at 3 a.m. Uh, they pray for you because you're such a <laughs> person. <laughs> yeah. Damn. Okay, um, I didn't know if there was something extreme you had to do or something. Nah, no, no, they're actually, they're actually pretty laid back. Um, no, it was really fun though. Like I, you know, I did the labor with them every day. I didn't talk when they weren't talking. Um, I, yeah, I did the whole, the whole deal, man. There's obviously places where I couldn't go in the, you know, monastery and I'm not wearing the robes and all of that, but, um, yeah, I got as close to the experience as I could. And it was, um, it was cool, man. I mean, I think that, you know, spending at least a week every year doing something that's just totally out of the ordinary and kind of removed where you just kind of remove yourself from the grind. Like it really was a good reset for me. And it could be that, you know, like I talked about earlier, could be that you go spend a week in the wild. Could be that, you know, some people might do like a meditation retreat. Some people like me might go sign themselves up for uh, seven stints in the chapel a day, <laughs> whatever it is. So. <laughs> 
random thought, but you know, as we talk through this, you know, you you, you see people that like go out west and do their first like backcountry hunt, and like I feel like a hundred percent of the time they they come back and they're like, I'm effing hooked, like I'm holy, how do I not know about this? I'm obsessed, and then it's almost like I know this is going way back to the beginning of the episode, but it's almost like that hunt out west with a bow and you got a bunch of gear on your back and you're out there for a week and it's physically demanding and all that it almost that's like the closest thing we can tie back to our evolutionary like biology as it gets and i do you think like and, and i think you you've hunted out west right and you've done that work. like do you think that's is that what's occurring in the mind when people get so addicted to that the first time they experience it do you is it because you think it's so close to how we've evolved that that's that's as close as it gets right there and there's this, this moment where you're like I, I need this again yeah so to go back to the slot machine metaphor um and that scarcity loop i talked about that's now everywhere um so you have to ask okay well why do humans get hooked on that in the first place and it's because it, it seems to be because uh that is effectively the exact same architecture of hunting and gathering which used to keep us alive so if you think of a hunter gatherer let's say it's a million years ago and we need food uh, we don't know where it is though right so we have an opportunity to get food and survive so we go to point a you know reels roll nothing there go to point b slot reels are rolling nothing there Point C, slot reels are rolling, they line up, jackpot, we win. And that's a life-saving win, right? You found food and you need food to survive. And then we got to repeat the thing again, because that's what we do every single day, day in and day out. So it seems that our, our brain sort of evolved to be naturally attracted and get fixated on this system. Now, I mentioned how we have all these big tech companies and you know gaming institutions that are sort of figuring out how can we put this uh, scarcity loop in products in order to get people's time, attention, and eventually money. But because this evolved naturally in nature as part of the human brain, you can use it in a way that enhances your life. And hunting is a great example because it really is just, it's like, it sounds insane, but it's like playing slot machine. You know, there's animals out there You've got to put in hard work, effort, and skill in order to find them, but there's still randomness, right? You don't know if this LQC is going to be, you know, four years old and like, I'm going to pass on that, but it could be 12 years old. And it's like, oh my God, this is amazing, right? That's a jackpot. Um, and you're repeating that over the course of a week, you're covering miles. And so I think if you can find ways to use that architecture of the scarcity loop in a way that gets you doing things that have always made humans healthy, being outside being with other people, uh, being physically active, but also physically active in a way that takes some, a little bit of brain power along the way. Like hunting is really hard. You can't just walk around like an idiot, right? It's like a, a real legit skill. Uh, I think that that tends to hook people in a way that puts them into experiences that are really, really good for them and really rewarding. So it's almost like, you know, the person who is hooked on hunting is the same that is hooked on slot machines. But the person who's hooked on hunting is doing all these things that make them a better human. Whereas the person hooked on slot machines is slowly wasting away their money, probably smoking Marlboro Reds, probably having some drinks <laughs> as they do. And it's probably <laughs> driving them crazy in the long run. Whereas the hunter is getting like all these other benefits. And it's not just hunting. It's There's all sorts of things you can do outside that fall into this and different activities, even in cities that you can do that enhance your life. Yeah, it's interesting. It's the same mechanism, just used in two completely opposing ways. Yeah. Well, and that's the crazy part. You know, in your book, it's like there, there is a real it's reason. Literally, it's literally everywhere. Yeah. It's literally everywhere. It's programmed into everything we see. 
and hopefully for the people that read the book, like you'll become more aware of just, you know, how to avoid falling into that. You know what I mean? When it's something that is, you know, going to, going to harm you. And then obviously things like hunting and, you know, different examples, it's, it's the other side of it, but it's still tapping into that same mindset. Um, now it's, it's really fascinating. Um, Michael, I think the last question I have for you is like, you obviously spent a good, you know, chunk of your life diving into all of this. And, and like kind of Tony talked about earlier, I would imagine in that process, there was probably a lot of self-reflection on your own life and, and practices. So for the people living in like, I, we love to have takeaways here. And I feel like we've already had a, a lot of good ones in that, that 2%, you said 2pct.org. Uh, yeah. TWOPCT.com is the uh, okay. site. And there's just tons of stuff about all the topics you guys talk about. And there's a lot of content on rocking, on fitness, on Love it. Um, some of the psychological stuff we've been talking about. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff there. But my question is like in, in, in your years of doing this, if you could boil down your biggest takeaways, you know, three to five takeaways just for the listeners that, um, you've pulled, like what, what would those be? Not to, not to put you on the spot. And that's a loaded Uh-oh. question. Three to five. Um, or any number, whatever. Yeah. Just, uh, <laughs> open-ended. Yeah. Um, a line that I've always, uh, that's always popped up when I was writing the comfort crisis is, um, explore the edges, which is being willing to, um, do things that are a little bit on the edge of what you think your capabilities are, you know, because I think that is in that space where we're unsure if we're going to be able to complete whatever it is, that is where we ultimately learn. Like we don't learn from doing the safe thing over and over and over. We learn from taking risks and learning when we learning from when we fail and learning from when we uh, succeed. So I think that is a big one for me. And you can, you can apply that to anything. It could be uh, fitness. It could be a hunt. It could be, uh, starting a business could be all these different things. Um, and that also kind of encapsulates, I don't really have a tagline for the second one. Um, but it kind of encapsulates us in the sense that you need to realize that we are living in the best time ever to be alive because we do have safety nets. You know, if all of a sudden everything I have just went away, like I wouldn't die by the way, like, I feel like I've learned enough along the path that I've been on that I could probably rebuild something yet. We're still very risk intolerant as a species. Right. And I think that right now we don't realize just what great safety nets we all have. And we, we're, we're very afraid of what, what might be, and that doesn't always serve us anymore. It used to, used to, you know, if I lost everything, whatever it is, 200,000 years ago, like I would die. And so it makes sense to like kind of cling to that and try and control and organize everything and not take risks. But I don't think it makes sense anymore. And then if I had to say three, I don't know, to, I guess a cliche one, go do hard shit outside. I mean, that does seem to, especially dudes, especially dudes that would be listening to this podcast. I mean, that does, even though maybe they're already doing that. I mean, keep doing that. That's really, um, I think gives you these moments where you find out what sort of gears you have on board and you find that you maybe have gears you didn't realize existed. And then you can get into those gears in normal life in a way that um, moves your life forward. Yeah. We're friends with the guys over at mountain tough. And I saw that you, you did their podcast as well. And I was like, that's a perfect fit for, for what, what I know you've written a ton about. And then what I know those guys stand for, I mean, and we do as well as a company. That was, that was a, that was a good fit there. Dustin, Dustin's a, Dustin's a beast for sure. <laughs> He's a great, yeah. Great yeah, we, I, uh, I trained with him for a couple of days and that dude is just, uh, yeah, he can move some weight and move it fast and move it hard <laughs> and move it far. So, uh, oh, yeah. kudos to him. He's a person you want on your side in like a fitness competition. 
for sure. Tone, you got anything else? No, no. I think we we covered my my list of touch points. Yeah, I, I think the biggest takeaway from all of this is is just the a lot of this comes down to to one self awareness and then self discipline. You know what I mean? And like we said, I think if you can zoom out of each scenario and and weigh the pros and cons, it becomes very very obvious what the right choice is. Um, but as you, you kind of get into, we're, we're almost hardwired in the current society to make the wrong choice just because of how society has evolved and the comforts that come with it. Um, so it's a, man, this is super kind of thought provoking stuff. And I'm so glad uh, we got intro to you and I, I can't wait. I'm definitely going to subscribe, um, to, um, the newsletter you have. And, and I, cause it sounds like that the cool thing about that is there are kind of hard takeaways to, for improvement and you know what I mean? And yeah. you know, I love things like Huberman and all that, but it is like, all right, it's a three hour podcast talking about cold dubs and it's like, <laughs> cool. I love it, but I'm not a scientist. So can you just tell me, like, give me the 10 minute version and I'll just go do it. You know what I mean? So, uh, you know, maybe it, your, your forum is a bit more wired like that. Um, so definitely going to check that out. And, uh, Michael, any closing thoughts or anything else you want to want to plug for the audience? No, I don't think so. I mean, the, the new book's called scarcity brain. I'm I'm online, easy to find. The website is twopct.com. And to your point, yeah, I, I even try and say, um, every time I write like a, because I section things out of like takeaways and I'll even write like, in short, here's the one sentence for the person who's only going to read one sentence about this topic. <laughs> because I'm I'm also that way with super long, uh, you know, I don't know, four hours on a single topic. I'm like, oh, holy shit, this is a lot. Um, so yeah, hopefully it's useful. Oh yeah. Well, Michael, thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy man, um, jumping around, promoting the book and doing all kinds of other things. So thank you so much for, for sharing your thoughts with us. Um, for the, the listeners, I hope this was, uh, something that provided you some key takeaways. I know it's something I'm going to be thinking a lot about. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as Michael said, you know, uh, try to think about some of these short term gratification habits that you have in your life and, and, and really kind of give it some thought on, what are you really getting from that? And what are the alternatives that might be giving you a more long-term um, benefit? So um, I know, uh, Tony, we, we got some things we need to work on, but this is definitely going to hopefully point us in the right direction. So thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, as always, if you don't mind liking, subscribing, commenting, all those things to engage it will really help us out and uh, look forward to the next podcast. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Michael. Thanks a lot, guys. 